Hello again, everybody. Welcome back to another edition of Political Beats, a presentation of National Review. And a reminder, you can subscribe to our feed. New episodes Mondays uh, through iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, or TuneIn. You can also go right to nationalreview.com, click on podcasts uh, on the uh, top uh, menu, and find Political Beats each and every week with the lovingly handcrafted show notes uh, that Jeff does for us each and every week. My name is Scott Bertram. You can find me on Twitter at Scott Bertram. My co-host, as always, Jeff Blair at Esoteric City on Twitter. Jeff, welcome back. Hey, it's a pleasure to be here again. And an episode that was almost canceled due to Hurricane Irma. God, Hurricane Irma, bad, bad thing for the people of Florida. Also bad for us, as it turned out. Yes, although uh, I, I believe we will be successful in rescheduling, so the the guest and the band that was uh, on the docket for today, we'll, we'll just push it off. And, and as I said in our pre-show meeting, we've already done our homework for, for the next band. You know, we can we can slough off for a week if we want. We won't. And this is one could. that I had to do no homework at all for. <laughs> by it's almost like it's even better. It's like a bonus for me. It's like now I have an excuse to talk about something that I've loved since I was 16 years old. And uh, we welcome in our weekly guest to get political beats. We talk to people who are working in, covering, commenting on the world of politics, uh, which impacts your life in a real way every single day. And we talk to them not about anything political at all, but about their favorite music and specifically their favorite bands and artists. And today we are very pleased to welcome on to Political Beats, a former editor-in-chief and a current editor-at-large of Reason Magazine, co-host of the We the Fifth podcast. You can find that at We the Fifth. Spell out fifth, would you please? And you can find him on Twitter at Matt Welch. He is Matt Welch. Matt, thank you for joining Political Beats. I'm so honored to be on, uh, you know, your first handful of shows, even if it's a total last minute disaster <laughs> fill in. I don't care. I feel like I was chosen. Uh, and thank you very much for having me. Uh, before... Matt knows full well that I kept him in the back of my pocket. It's like, boy, I could have you on to discuss so many things. I don't want to waste you unless I really need it. So <laughs> it's been an honor to have you here. We talk about music all the time. Before we get to our band, uh, we, we dig a little deeper into uh, who Matt Welch is. We ask you, uh, what is your political beat? What's your political job? How did you get involved in the world of politics? So I uh, started journalism in college 30 years ago and moved to Eastern Europe, uh, where I started a newspaper uh, in the 90s in Prague and uh, had always considered myself to be kind of a, a Central European liberal type, uh, which is a, a breed that doesn't really exist in American parlance, but means you want the commies to get the hell away from you and, and not run businesses and that everyone should smoke hash if they want to and sit on the Charles Bridge and play REM songs if that's uh, what you want to do. Um, and so when I came back to this country in uh, 1998, 1999, um, and was writing about politics, I kind of realized that I was a Reason Magazine libertarian, um, although I'd always thought myself more as a journalist first. So uh, I edited the magazine for eight years. I'm uh, at large now. I cover a lot of uh, politics, media, Trump, uh, immigration, this big change that we we're having away from the kind of post-war neoliberal era, if you want to be uh, semi-fancy about it. Uh, and um, and I do a lot of uh, broadcast media here in New York on MSNBC, Fox, and elsewhere. And uh, Matt, we, we, you know, we, we work with the guests. We ask the guests, what's your favorite band? What's your favorite artist? It always works very well. It works well if you're passionate about it. That's what works well. But it also is a nice uh, side benefit when it's also one of our favorite artists. And this one in particular is right in the wheelhouse of our own 
Jeff Blair. And uh, Jeff, our band today, I allow you to do the introduction. Well, our band today is, I think a lot of people would argue, maybe the single most important American indie rock act of the last 30 years or so. Uh, got their start in 1980, uh, continued on until fairly recently when they decided to finally call it a day. They crawled out of the South uh, along with a lot of other interesting smaller groups from that era, but they made it big. Uh, they have a lead singer who was famously indecipherable in his early years and maybe was a little bit too easily deciphered in his later years. They have a guitarist who was famous for getting really drunk and playing fantastic birdsy and arpeggios. They had a drummer who famously had only one eyebrow, but an incredible <laughs> sense of time. And then they had a really, really wonderful nerd playing bass. Yes, of course, I'm talking about one of the greatest American bands of all time and maybe one of the greatest southern bands of all time. REM. I am really happy to be discussing REM today. Matt, I guess I'd like to turn it over for you right now to talk to us about why you like REM, why you wanted to talk about them, and what they've meant to you throughout your life. So I'm 49 years old. You can all do your math. Uh, and <clears throat> I was the youngest of four kids. And so I was uh, in sway of my older siblings' record collection. I was the most boring classic rocker uh, ever known. I even had a theory called uh, the Big Five Theory, which is just basically, you know, Beatlestone, Zeppelin, Doors Who uh, are the only real artists, and they're all dead, by the way, or broken up by, uh, by the time that I'm a sort of conscious consumer of music, and so we must live in the past and just keep revisiting these people as artists. And you can listen to the odd contemporary whoever. They're doing interesting things, but the real geniuses were there. Um, go to high school. I have a, a dear friend named Paul Marr, who gifts me with two things, uh, probably in my 10th grade year. One is a copy of uh, Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas by Hunter Thompson, which helped send me down the journalistic path. And the other is Murmur uh, by R.E.M. He also threw in some jam there. But for me, R.E.M. And, and Murmur especially was this shock of discovery that there were people age, although that's not how I thought about it at the time because it seemed so far away um, uh, from possibilities, that real art was being made on my time uh, in the music field. And uh, so that was itself a shocking kind of admission that there might be a, a new world out there. But also it was really difficult to figure it out. It didn't, back then, this is the early 80s. So you know, uh, music that was popular and that we were listening to in junior high school, which is basically heavy metal, it wasn't exactly subtle. You know, listening to Too Fast for Love, you kind of knew where they were talking about and, and why they were feeling emotional about things. Um, uh, that was the REM. It's like, what, what, what is sitting still about? What were these songs? You'd seem to be all bent up, a perfect circle, these kind of things off of that first record. So we would listen to it over and over and over again, eventually. I would learn how to play uh, guitar by listening to Murmur. You can play, uh, you know, two two strings at a time pretty easily, like that, right? So that's I picked up guitar. Um, eventually, I would uh, Fables of the Reconstruction would uh, with their third record, full length record, would uh, introduce me to chords. Uh, I learned that way, and uh, it's it was an introduction not just to me, but I think to the country, to this thing. We used to call it college rock. It became alternative music, but in ways that's really hard to, to uh, describe to someone who's all that much younger than I am, we had to go find that stuff. <laughs> it wasn't just like a friend recommended it on social media. That's not <laughs> how things worked. 
you had to find like the secret network of record stores. You actually had to go to college. That was super helpful. Um, but the, that that culture was not obvious in North Long Beach in 1983. Uh, so this it was, feels like the second time, the second time in two weeks that we should make a reference to uh, LCD sound systems losing my edge. <laughs> we were like, everybody, all the kids these days have access to this music, but I was there. I had <laughs> to find it myself. <laughs> I'm so glad that we didn't, uh, that people now don't have to find it. But uh, it, I just, it, it gives, it gave at that time this feeling of that I discovered it. And strangely enough, I think the, the, the way in culture that we have that feeling now is largely through podcasts. I find because mm-hmm. I do a, a, a couple of podcasts, the fifth column, which you guys uh, talked about, and also the reason podcast. But people go out and they find those things and then they put them in their ear while they're, you know, riding their exercise bike or going on the subway or doing whatever, driving. And so it feels like, hey, that's mine. I, you know, that's special to me. And REM was the epitome of that feeling because they were on this indie uh, record label, IRS, and all these things. And then you got to watch them as they kind of they, they signed the big deal. They made it. They eventually got to number one. They paved the way for a lot of uh, different things. So from REM was my first show, um, my first ever girlfriend, uh, you know, uh, uh, on the first evening that uh, – we uh, thought we were going to get romantic. She signed over a beautiful uh, a photograph that she took uh, of uh, Peter Buck at uh, one of uh, the shows that I went and saw him at the, the County Bowl in Santa Barbara. So they've been a touchstone of my life uh, uh, throughout. What year was it when you first got handed that copy of Murmur? Do you remember? It would be 1983, first year of high school. Um, as- oh, wow. So like right when it came out. Yeah. Okay, wow. So right at the beginning you were there. That must you must feel a sense of ownership over them. I must be the that kid who came in later and is stealing <laughs> your love because I didn't actually get into them until I think the end of high school. Of course, everybody knew REM, and that this is the difference. And I'm I'm obviously about uh, 14 years younger than you, 13 years. I'm 36 now. So when I was growing up, of course, the first encounter with REM that happened sort of out of the corner of my ear was with Document which we'll get to. The one I love, it's the end of the world as we know it. These are songs that kind of, you, you heard on the radio, didn't mean too much to me at the time. It's only with uh, Out of Time and Losing My Religion and Shiny Happy People, of course, as well, that they went truly nuclear and then they were unavoidable. Everybody heard them. We bought the albums, Automatic for the People, of course, I bought. I kind of like listened to them and they were sort of there as background music for me but i didn't really pay much attention to them it was just to me part of the popular modern music scene it was only when in high school uh the end of my high school years i went back and i bought murmur again it's always always comes back to murmur doesn't it and i was bought it on a recommendation people say this is one of the great albums debut albums ever made and i was like okay well i i will accept your dare and i will buy that album and (laughs) boy they were right and so it kind of set me down a path of obsession with them not only getting every record but hunting down the b-sides trying to figure out just like you said about what are these songs about again you talk about learning how to play guitar the two bands that I taught myself to play guitar to, one of them was Radiohead, and then the other one was R.E.M. And they were very different styles because the yeah. arpeggiation in, in R.E.M. songs was actually much more difficult because it was, it was flat picking, which is something I, I that still, I'm... I still can't do that, by the way. So, like, it sounds yeah. fancy that I learned how to play. I, I can't play a lick like Peter Buck can. And that's just <laughs> yeah, exactly. a different type of music for me. But He but just I rolls that stuff off so easily and so naturally. But they eventually... You know, it's so funny that I ended up returning to the albums that I had heard when I was a young kid, uh, like in the middle school. Um, but then I returned to them with the context of what I had then discovered about their earlier career, and they hit me so much more 
heavily than they had before, Automatic for the People suddenly wasn't just that album that had Everybody Hurts on it. It was one of the most emotionally kind of compelling and devastating records of its era out of time wasn't that one with the really annoying shiny happy people everyone's dancing to the cartoony background song it's the album that had near wild heaven on it It had belong it had me and honey and i very quickly came to the conclusion that this was and i still hold this belief one of the greatest bands that has ever existed certainly one of the greatest american bands of all time i think it ranks right up there with the Velvet underground with the birds the best of the best of the united states musical scene and certainly the best of the 80s and it's always been so so interesting to me to to see how they were the one group that made it out Mm -hmm. so many of these indie bands tried to make that transition from the independent era to the major labels and for whatever reason they fell apart sometimes they didn't have the discipline like the replacements sometimes the inner band tensions tore them apart like Husker do sometimes they ended up getting you know messed around by their their own labels and the people who were supposed to be producing and and caring for them groups like Black Flag or something like that REM was the one that made it out and they made it big and they somehow managed to maintain their artistic integrity as a major label artist all throughout the 90s without losing any of that fire, that weirdness, that indie credibility, and also while completely changing. You listen to Automatic for the People and you listen to Murmur, how can these band, How can both of these albums be made by the same band? And yet they're both <laughs> masterpieces. They grew, and it's so compelling. I was, uh, uh, thanks to your tweet, Storm and R.E.M., which is masterful, uh, you know, I'm, I've always been a, a very big fan of the band. They're central to, uh, to my life, um, and I learned tons of... Uh, of going through it, but um, I, I, it got me back into Murmur. I tend, I tend to be a Fables the Reconstruction guy. Um, my, my life, <clears throat> I uh, kind of self-sabotaged it uh, in the ages of 18 and 19, so I got kicked out of uh, college. I had to be like moved back home uh, to my uh, dad's house. I was working, uh, and people who know me well will realize how ridiculous this is going to sound. I was working full time in an auto body shop for minimum wage. Uh, <laughs> uh, I mean, I can't, I can't use a screwdriver. Uh, yet there I was at seasonal auto body, um, and so imagine just like being pretty low there and fable, fables of reconstruction, which is a uh, uh, very brooding. Um, not completely dark, but murky and cloudy uh, record and, and rumination, and just sitting there with the ghetto blaster, which is what we had and what we <laughs> called them back then, mm-hmm. um, just uh, rewinding constantly to see, like, uh, wait, I, I fell asleep and read just about every paragraph? What? And, like, teaching myself all of that. So for me, Fables is, the, uh, is still, to this day, it hits me on an emotional level because it was there for me in dark times. But until your tweet storm, I hadn't listened to Murmur in a, a, a whole long time. And uh, and I thought that I wanted to bounce off you, and maybe I did on, on Twitter, but you were so busy uh, sorting through your accolades, you probably didn't note. Um, <laughs> you go back and listen to it, and it calls to mind, uh, for me, the most interesting thing about that uh, that uh, B minus uh, documentary, guitar documentary called uh, "It Might Get Loud" with the Edge, yeah. and Jack White, and uh, with Jack White, yeah. Um, yeah, Jack White's trying too hard and all this kind of stuff. But like, um, it was interesting in that documentary to hear the Edge talk about his own conception of them as doing minimalism, right? They're they're cutting through the bloat of 
the you know of Jimmy Page, frankly, at the time, and just kind of 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 uh, guitars and 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 wizards and things like that, and just trying to play as few number of strings as possible, right? You think of uh, you know uh, I will follow and that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. So yeah, all of that Boy October early U two stuff is very kind of classic post-punk like Echo and the Bunnymen it's not what we think of as sort of more grandiose U2 from the later and years so REM you think you listen to it and I'm thinking this is a craftwork record I mean uh, <clears throat> it is so totally de minimis there you hear uh, you know again you can listen you can learn how to play guitar on two strings by listening to that record because they're not playing lots of chords Even uh, the Arpeggio stuff is uh, is uh, surmountable and very very discreet, uh, you know, piano pickings and things. It's an incredibly minimalist record, but it also has, as uh, they taught us in Spinal Tap, uh, the mystery of role. You just what what is he saying? Why is he? Why don't I understand? You can actually understand more than you than people give him credit for the actual words. It's the it's the what the hell is he talking about? Was always kind of a mystery there. Why are they getting excited about Radio Free Europe one way or the other? <laughs> um, but going back and listening, it's that it's that sense of of uh, minimalism. I, I think that contributes it being uh, super classic. And I think as you pointed out in your tweet storm, they've been honing those songs down for something like three years at that point. Three years, yeah. Which is uh, which is not to be uh, sneezed at. Yeah, so, I mean, that's actually a really great way to sort of take us into the beginning of R.E.M.'s career. You know, the uh, early EP, Chronic Town, then you have Murmur, then you have Reckoning. These are sort of the kind of gothic southern folk rock years. Maybe you could say Fables of the Reconstruction is the last one of that era. I think it's more of a transitional record. But you have these early records. R.E.M. started as a college band. They were, you know, just a bunch of people playing gigs in Athens, Ohio, for the University of Georgia scene. Um, if you ha- And they're, by the way, one of the most well-documented live acts of the 80s era. Mm-hmm. So it's a blessing that we have so many high-quality soundboard recordings, not just like some guy holding a wall and sack tape recorder in the back of a sweaty gym. No, we actually have soundboards from dating back as far as October 1980, you know, months after they had formed. Their early stuff is terrible. Oh my God, it's terrible. They had a whole host of early songs that they played, like an entire two albums worth of material that they ditched, which is very telling. You ask yourself, I've asked myself a hundred times, how is it possible that Chronic Town as an EP and Murmur as a debut album sounded so preternaturally mature? In fact, last week I was talking about Arcade Fire in the context of Funeral, which is their debut album, and it sounds another album that sounds stunningly mature. And I said, these are albums that don't sound like the beginnings of a career. They sound like the culmination of a long career. They're made with such confidence. They have such self-possession. The people on these records clearly know exactly what it is they want to do, and they execute it perfectly. How is that possible? Well, in R.E.M.'s case, because their beginnings are so well-documented, we know. It's because they spent a lot of time sorting through what was good Mm -hmm. and what was bad, and they played it every single night on the road, and they honed those arrangements into a 
diamond hard perfection. Almost all of the stuff from their first three records was played as early as 1981, 1982. Murmur wasn't even recorded and released until 1983. And by the time they finally got that first album out, they had a complete understanding of who it, who, who they were and who they wanted to be. Um, which, of course, brings me to the question. Matt, I ask you, Scott, I ask you, is Murmur not the single greatest <laughs> debut album ever released by anyone? Well, yes I, or no? I will um, overturn the apple cart a bit, and I know that, that uh, you actually, you would call someone like me a name uh, via your tweet storm. I don't, I don't think Murmur's <laughs> their best early album. I, I, I think Reckoning is their best early album. Um, Murmur is good, and I think that one of the amazing things about their first three and maybe even four uh, records is uh, they are so preternaturally good that there's not really a misstep anywhere. I mean, there's not a misstep anywhere uh, on those tracks. Uh, for, pilgrimage. But for me, reckoning and, and the uh, the better sound they got in that record, trying to trying to capture what the band sounded like live, um, comes off better. I think you start to get a little more of that you know the intertwining vocals between Michael Stipe and Mike Mills on. Uh, Harbor Quote and, and uh, Pretty Persuasion to, uh, you know, Murmur. So I would say it is not the best debut album of all time. That is not to say it's not a very good and, again, fully formed uh, debut album for a band uh, that is as young as R.E.M. was. <clears throat> I uh, the, the Murmur would be the greatest, and it's certainly to me in the, in a top ten of greatest debuts, and I don't really know what I'd put at the top. Probably um, Velvet Underground and Nico, um, which is... Partly interesting because REM did a lot of callbacks and covers of uh, of uh, VU, um, and I think pointed a generation uh, backwards in that direction in a way that was uh, that was helpful and interesting, even while not necessarily playing great covers of the songs themselves. Though we might disagree about that, um, but it's that terrible song "We Walk," uh, and I almost always don't remember the titles of REM songs yes. because yes. a part of their inscrutability is that it was impossible to read their. Uh, their records um and uh and they didn't have lyrics for a long time and so but it's the uh, up this this into the <laughs> like jesus christ this there's there should be uh I, i've thought a lot about uh, making like a compilation of single tracks that doom <laughs> otherwise perfect records i i would call it probably queen of hearts after the bob dylan song on 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 um uh you know the 72 record what's it called again the with Tangled Up in Blue. Uh, Blood uh, Blood on the tracks. Blood of, oh, yeah. you mean those yeah, Rosemary? Oh, yeah, Lily Rosemary and the Jack of Hearts is what you're talking the about. The Jack of Hearts, thank you. Um, it's just a garbage song that never ends. Uh, Nick Cave, Boatman's Call, has is lovely, and then it's got like some super loud, uh, terrible like uh, Irish Scots number at the end that just wrecks it. And so we walk wrecks the perfection of of Murmur. Uh, but, to, but to also uh, touch on what Scott is saying, and uh, a friend of mine who I think uh, sometimes tweets at you about uh, music, uh, a great, great singer-songwriter in his own uh, right, who most people don't know, named Jason Pontius, um, he makes the argument that it's about those first four records. And that's not just like I knew them when they were cool or you know when they were on IRS, but I think the quality of those first four records is just remarkable. They have a couple of ones afterwards that I think are very, very good too. Mm -hmm. um, but there's a consistent high level, as well as differentiation of style and product and song on those first four, which I can't think of any other band really coming close to it. There are more dead spots somewhere along the lines in the first four records of almost any other band. There's almost none in REM. 
Well, I, I think, you know, before we even move on to the first four records, I just want to say a little shout out to Chronic Town, which is, you know, an EP. And, you know, usually these bands have their, their debut EP. It's forgettable. It's like that part where, you know, the band isn't fully formed. Let's turn a blind eye to the failings here. R.E.M.'s first EP is as good as Murmur, in my opinion. Wolves Lower is the first song on the first thing that R.E.M. ever released, and it is a fully formed statement of purpose for this band. It is everything that they would ever aspire to be executed perfectly. Track one, EP one. Guarding at Night, of course, is a famous song. Million still hits it. They played that song for like 10 years. They liked it so much. But then you get to, to murmur and... You know, you talk about the mystery of songs. Laughing is the one that always jumps out to me. I have no idea what that song means. That song has no <laughs> meaning whatsoever as far as I'm concerned, and it doesn't matter because it means 16 different things to me at 16 different times when I listen to it. And all that really matters to me is Mike Mills's bass line, which sounds like a python curling its way around the arms of a human being and strangling them to death, which is a strange image, but the reason I cite to that is that Michael Stipe seems to want to sing about Leakuan, who is this figure from the Iliad uh, is a Trojan priest who prophesied the doom of Troy and so the gods who were on the Greek side sent a pair of pythons to strangle him to death pretty grim Michael Stipe must not have been in a great mood when he wrote the song but then you have things like Perfect Circle as you as you pointed out Perfect Circle is <clears throat> it just doesn't seem like a song that could be written by young men it seems like a song that has such mystery such a burden to it that it would have to come from older, wiser people than, you know, the, the semi-adolescent mushheads who wrote it. And that's what <laughs> I don't understand about the miracle of Murmur. It is a softer sound than what their live act was like at the time. You can go listen to the tapes. And I guess I think that's probably why Scott likes Reckoning, because Reckoning is their live act. Mm -hmm. Reckoning sounds like they sounded live. Harbor Coat, Pretty Persuasion, the, the the sort of the ructions on the guitars there. That's that's what REM was like live in 1984. But for me, again, the key track on Reckoning isn't Harbor Coat, which I love. It isn't South Central Rain, which of course is the most famous song from that early era. It's a thing called Camera. A very dark, quiet, long song. You know, it just opens with a, a, a metronomic tick-tock bass. And, uh, you know, Bill Berry just clicking his sticks against the drum head. And it's Michael Stipe singing about the death of a friend of his in a car accident. And it is the gloomiest thing that they had ever released up until that point. From the inside room When the front room green becomes your special book It was simple then When the party lows If we fall And completely pointed the way towards Fables of the Reconstruction, which I think is an album we're going to have to spend some time talking about. I know it's Matt's favorite. I think Fables is sort of famous as their difficult record, the one that the band doesn't really like, that a lot of the fans don't really like because it's just so gloomy and it has a surly, leaden attitude uh, all over its songs. I think it's one of the most compelling things they ever released. And I guess, Matt, I want to give you a chance to talk about why Fables means so much to you. Um, before I do, just quick shout out that you alluded to it, but that's something that almost always gets lost in the tales of great bands is work ethic. 
There's a moment in a, a montage of Heck, the Nirvana documentary, which is really an interesting and beautiful piece of art in itself, where they're doing things like uh, animating his journal entry, uh, Kurt Cobain's journal entries. And there's one moment in there that n doesn't otherwise get touched, where he underlines uh, a single sentence, something like, great bands, practice, practice, practice. And it's like, let's hear more about that, because actually <laughs> that's a thing. Uh, that separates a lot of 21-year-olds from just being a guy who's screwing off in a garage somewhere to actually, no, we're going to woodshed this stuff for three years and figure out what works and what doesn't. Another thing I would say just about uh, gardening at night, just something off Chronic Town, um, I much prefer the version that's on uh, Eponymous, uh, early collection of IRS stuff, which is a much harder vocal. I played a, a wedding uh, about 10-plus years ago, and uh, naturally what we did is decided to make the entire wedding a, a wedding medley. Uh, <laughs> most of the people involved in the wedding uh, were musicians themselves, so it was a big uh, kind of fun goof. Um, and one of the only songs that we played in its entirety in the middle of a just a single medley uh, was Gardening at Night. And I always kind of discounted the damn thing um, just because there's something about um, that early uh, REM and uh, that uh, doesn't always uh, – like Wolves Lower never really uh, quite gets to me for some reason um, – but once I had to actually struggle through the lyrics and kind of get uh, with it, um, and I'm not going to explain this much further, just leave it for people to pursue themselves. Um, I took away, and I never do any research on REM, like what songs actually mean, because I don't want to know, I'm not interested. Uh, but listening to it, it sounded like the struggles of a young man who doesn't really know yet how to grapple with his bandmates, who he has a really great male bonding time with, that he's actually gay. Um, listen to the song again with that in mind, and I swear it's an amazing thing to sing alive and to listen to again. But Fables, uh, in addition to the Merc, um, I, the, if you listen to it, it's a guitar on a guitar on a guitar on a guitar. There's all these chords. It feels like, I don't think he plays a 12-string on the on the record, maybe on Wendell uh, Gee or G, however you pronounce it. Um, at the end, there might be some, um, but it's more just like layers of chords and it sort of washes over you. You're in the uh, the amber waves of grain, you know, looking out a, uh, a train window going by and it's like late autumn. And just everything feels like that on there. And it just gives this incredible atmosphere um, that they uh, that they never really went to again. I mean, they did get to some clear kind of folk rock and some southern influenced uh, stuff and the mandolin obviously uh came out of the uh out of the of the cabinet after a while and all these kinds of things but they were kind of discreet it sounded more like uh, modern uh semi alt country but this is just waves of this brooding kind of gloom but the moments that really uh strike out like on maps and legends is an example of this um, uh, even, um, I don't have a track list in front of me. And again, uh, the, another engine, um, these songs that are mostly kind of minor chord, a lot of E minors and weird kind of Fs mm -hmm. with fingers off and stuff. Um, there would always be a moment when it would resolve to a G to a, to a D or a big C major. And, uh, you would feel like a momentary glimpse of total, like optimism and possibility that would then get retreated back into the muck. So it's much more about the overall kind of brooding sonic impression um and this sort of uh tales of a of a place that you don't really understand and nor do the narrators but uh that uh looking for wisdom while being sort of a shook up young person by the old things around you which you both distrust but are, are aware that you are part of all of it speaks to me about being kind of just uh 
an unmoored young man in tr in uh, kind of transition uh, and not exactly settled in where you are. That's what that sounds like. God, Matt, that's perfect. And that, first of all, that description is is about as good a way you could ever summarize fables. And the one song, to me at least, that most perfectly characterizes that that image that you're going for is actually the most famous song. It's Driver Eight, where it has these, you know, the the minor key verse. The walls are built up stone by stone, fields divided one by one. You're on this train. It's just cutting through this vast southern territory. These fields. And then all of a sudden, it, boom, it resolves to the major for the chorus. And the train conductor says, take a break, driver eight. We will reach our destination, but it's still a ways away. It's still a ways away. And again, you, you get, these people are talking about things that are only sort of half resolved, half referenced, glimpsed out of the corner of an eye. There's a weight behind them that it, it lets you bring your own meaning to your own emotional import to what the song is about. That song feels like a travelogue of the South to me. You look at sort of the, the, the burned out shacks along the side of the trails. You, you look at the kites that are caught in the telephone wires above as the train goes by, but you can bring whatever it is you're feeling personally at the time when you hear it because of the way they sing it. And also because of the operation of the music, because of the way it resolves from the minor to the major for the chorus. And it just keeps chugging along with this relentless groove. I think I said it on the tweet storm. I said, listen, if you don't like driver eight, you don't like REM. And Political Beats here, uh, National Review presentation, talking R.E.M. with Matt Welch, former editor-in-chief, current editor-at-large of Reason Magazine, also the co-host of the We the Fifth podcast. Find him on uh, Twitter, at Matt Welch. I'm Scott Bertram. He's Jeff Blair. And um, moving, I guess, to the, the fourth of the of the first four, right, Life's Rich Pageant. I make a case, it's it's a little overlooked, I think, from, from the first four, but this is oh, yeah. such a rich album for me to experience. It's the sound, I think, of the band trying a few new things, and I, I love it. Uh, from, from the opening uh, track, Begin to Begin, which is loud, and uh, I think it's the first time Peter Buck's guitar sounds exactly like that. Um, Cuyahoga, uh, with, with Stipe's lyrics getting a little more political uh, and, and ecological. Um, an instrumental track underneath the bunker, which is like 90 seconds, but I just dig it. Um, the banjo uh, that Buck plays uh, at, the, at the start of I Believe, Just a Touch, which is really a hard song, and listening to it again in, in preparation, look, if you didn't tell me who it was, it would be like a click away from a replacements track on Please to Meet Me, maybe. That's, that's how that song sounds to me. And then, to cap things off, this wonderful cover with Mike Mills taking the lead vocals on an old track named Superman. And it's such a joyous three minutes worth of audio. Um, I don't know if they had been that fun in any of the first albums yet. And it's, it's you know, it's buried at the back of the album. But Superman is just such a, a, a wondrous track to behold, I think.
Life's Rich Pageant to me, again, the pre-document, the pre-Scott Lit era, is the most overlooked, but perhaps the most rewarding, given a, a another listen. It's my favorite record of R.E.M. Um, I know that I talk about Fables. Fables is the one I can't live without. I've bought Fables 17 different times. It's probably not exa- an exaggeration. I would just find myself in a country. I don't have Fables. I don't know what happened to it. I need it. <laughs> I don't have that sense of need of Life's Rich Pageant. Um, I wouldn't say that it's their best record. I think Murmur somehow is their best. Um, it's weird that you have these different d- designations. But as a favorite thing, I think it's their sound most uh, realized. Uh, I was lucky enough to grow up in Southern California, and we had a local rock critic who everyone made fun of there. But he tried really hard, named Robert Hilburn. Um, and what he tried really hard to do, especially in the 80s, which is a decade dominated by like Huey Lewis and Starship and crap like that, in addition to... You know, Madonna, Prince, Michael Jackson. I won't have you talk well, about Huey Lewis like that, by the way. Yeah, well, <laughs> I'll save that for a different time. But uh, power of love, man. Uh, that uh, He went out looking, and he went spelunking for REM. He was an early, early champion. He declared them the best band in America in around 1984, which is a pretty early uh, call there. I think um, uh, Rolling Stone got around there uh, by about, like, 1987, 1988, maybe. But So Life Search Pageant, for me, comes... Uh, as a freshman in college, so it's a perfect uh, party record time. It's a point that Jeff made in this tweet storm that I hadn't really thought about. But Hilburn wrote at the time, this is what we've always wanted them to sound like, right? Because when you listen to R.E.M., you have the sense of like, God, if they just had plugged in the guitar here <laughs> a little bit more on Radio Free Europe, mm-hmm. you know, like you hear the great Stones rock song underneath all of that. And yet they made it this kind of like nervy new wave uh, a strange little uh, minimalist thing. Speaking of which, if, if uh, any listener out there hasn't seen their performance of Radio for Europe, and I think it's South Central Rain, on uh, David Letterman, their first television appearance, uh, go thee to YouTube. It's amazing. This nervy little geek band out there playing super kind of like fast uh, new wave music. It's really, really weird. It's, uh, they didn't even it's... have a title for South Central Rain. They just said, this is a new song without a title, and then they play it. <laughs> and it's it's amazing. It's a and fantastic it's an amazing performance. Song. Uh, so Leipzig Pageant, you know, you, you can his lyrics are much more uh, declarative and, and understandable. I mean, in ter- or comprehensible. I still have some uh, some issues kind of stuff, but it's, it is joyous. I believe is a joyous kind of uh, uh, statement of who knows what. But it's it's uh, pretty great. Begin to begin. I think they led most of their concerts with that for uh, a long time afterwards. It's a great like a throat clearer these days is you know uh is kind of a um, a political rallying cry without identifying the politics which comes later uh, to them the actual politics of things and i think uh it's when they start to uh, uh, uh degrade a little bit when they get more specific about that um but then fall on me which is the song that they love the most i think maybe in their whole cat uh, repertoire certainly i think michael stipe does throw this out to Jeff um, because uh, as uh, Jeff is a huge Beach Boys fan as well um, and has gone into the darker corners of their catalog my theory about Fall On Me is that they took it knowingly or not uh, from a great 
an otherwise forgotten Beach Boys track called Traitor or The Traitor uh, on the Holland uh, record. Um, it's a uh, it's a song that's like seven, eight minutes long. And the second half is just some kind of weird uh, nonsense. <laughs> it's all like Columbus despoiling America. But um, think of Jeff for a moment about the chorus of Traitor in the first half. It's da, 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 right? It's oh. absolutely plausible. It's the exact same chords. Seriously, it's the same I, chords. I, I actually, I remember environmental you. despoilation that people are not understanding as much as the author of the song wish that they would. I think it's a, I think it's a thing. Okay, first of all, you mentioned this to me back when I was talking about it on Twitter, and I thought to myself, hey, first of all, I know Trader. This is this is early '70s Beach Boys when nobody but the hardcore fans are still paying attention. <laughs> Great album, Holland. If you really like the Beach Boys, check it out. Um, Song Trader is one of their one of their great late period songs too. And yeah, when you mentioned that to me, I was like, whoa, <clears throat> dang, Matt's right about that. You really got you've got to correct on the chorus. And I also love the fact that when I mentioned I was talking about I did this long REM tweet storm. For those who aren't aware, it's you know nerdy's way I use Twitter. Uh, and I pointed out that Fall on Me is actually about acid rain. I got so many responses. People were like, "What? Really? I've <laughs> gone my entire life listening to that song, and I had no idea." And you know what? I respect that. I respect the fact that they encoded the message so deeply within it that you've been singing it your entire life, not quite getting what it was about. But it's right there in the chorus. You buy the sky and sell the sky and tell the sky and tell the sky, don't fall on me, which is very clearly a metaphor for like spewing toxins into the air and expecting horrible things not to happen as a result. But for me, what life's rich pageant, I, this kind of proves what you guys were saying about it. I did this thing every now and then where I make long compilations. REM, such a great band, where you're going to have to make a multi-disc compilation. You've got to go through that winnowing process. What songs on each album should I include? I never thought that Life's Rich Pageant was like one of my favorite REM records. And then I found out that I included eight of the 12 songs <laughs> from this album in my list. And I couldn't get rid of any of them because – it's such a consistent record and the miracle of life's rich pageant i'm going to do a little historian stuff here is that it should have failed this is the record that where rem should have cratered because it was a huge issue for them in terms of songwriting they didn't have material they had been running themselves ragged touring releasing recording stuff nonstop. they had used up their backlog of things people you know you don't go back to rockville uh written about my old hometown back in maryland incidentally from reckoning uh it was a song they threw on there when they didn't have anything else to put on the album it had actually been dated back to the earliest you know 1980 era it was a punk song back then they turned it into a country rock number by the time they had gotten to, to uh, life's rich pageant they didn't have songs they had to use two outtakes from fables of the reconstruction on that they had to use two more songs that they exhumed from the graveyard of their early repertoire just a touch is one of them and the other one is um what if we give it away and then they threw on an instrumental and then they threw on a cover track at the end of it and that should be a recipe for disaster a patchwork record you know the, the thing that you refer to in a band's discography is the okay this is where they were experiencing creative difficulties <laughs> and this is the just get me across pitch of the band's career <laughs> but instead life street's passion is one of the best things that they've ever released and it's far better than the album that came afterwards that 
actually broke them big as a band. Life's Rich Pageant has songs that nobody talks about unless you're a fan, but are as good as anything they've ever done, like I Believe, um, which is, or These Days. These Days is is politics the way I want it in my music. You know me, I'm a conservative kind of a guy. This isn't a political podcast, but of course most of the bands I listen to are very proudly left-wing groups, and by God, if you're going to sell me on your political message, that's the kind of inspiring political message I want to hear. That's a party on vinyl. I love These Days. I love Swan Swan Hummingbird. They're weird band-like. When I say band, I mean like the band, the the actual group. Um, it's a band-like pastiche. But Cuyahoga is the one that I keep coming back to. Again, explicit environmental message. It's it's named Cuyahoga because it's a it, obviously a take on the famous Cuyahoga River fire, where the river outside of Cleveland was so polluted mm-hmm. that it actually caught on fire. You know, the the paradox of a body of water catching flame was just so devastatingly perfect that how could you how could you not use that in a song? But this thing builds, <clears throat> it builds that you you feel like you listen to them. They're coming in for a landing. The first core, they're they're building to this pre-chorus. This is where they walked, swam. This is where they. And you think, okay, they're gonna hit the chorus, and they don't. They go back to a second verse, and it's delayed gratification. And then they finally come in and they hit that chorus. It's Koyoka. And then, oh my God, it feels like the most uh, cathartic release of pain that you could hear on an album from 1986, And it's one of those things where I, I, I think I said this is like, listen, I'm not exactly one of these environmental activist types, but by God, that actually makes me want to pick up a pitchfork and, and march. It makes me so angry. It makes me so moved. It is one of the most profoundly effective songs on an emotional level that R.E.M. has ever recorded. So many of the other to- tunes on Life, Life's Rich Pageant fall into that bag. And yet, as we've all pointed out, it seems to sort of fall between the slats. People don't talk about it the way they talk about Document, which unfortunately we much we must now discuss. This is the album that I will infuriate all of our listeners and maybe even the two of you by saying I think is an authentic <laughs> piece of crap. I don't think it's crap. In fact, if you check out my uh, like the top of my Twitter account, it's one of the albums featured in uh, in that little montage of of, uh, of LPs at the top of, uh, of, of my Twitter account. Um, Document might have been, Document might have been the first REM album I owned. And I think the back half or the back third suffers a bit, but that front with Finest Work Song, kicking things off, Exhuming McCarthy is is very good for what it is. Um, Disturbance of the Heron House is probably my favorite thing on, on Document. It's, uh, I think it stands up very well with the work on the first four albums get a new producer uh, on this album scott lit who would join and then produce their stuff for the next decade or so through their their peak commercial period you can hear that shift uh, a little bit on the, on the production um you know it's the album people know because it's got it's the end of the world as we know it and i feel fine 
I go back and forth on that one because I probably have heard it 87,000 times in my life at this point uh, in many different circumstances. And I think Jeff has mentioned this previously, that moment when the, the music drops out and it's just those voices harmonizing, what, about three quarters of the way through? That's an awesome REM moment. I don't know if it's worth the price of admission alone, but it, but it might be. I think Document is, is clearly a step down from, from the first four records. It, it, it's the, the one that broke them, but I, I think it's a high-quality LP still. I'm on a Team uh, Jeff here. Um, I had so much good uh, will going into this. REM had, had won me over. This is similar to my experience with The Replacements and Pleased to Meet Me, which came out the exact same season. I think it was 1987. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, and, uh, and everyone's ready for it. And you tell yourself that the finest work song is really a great song. And that this kind of terrible late eighties snare sound, um, that you're going to get over it. It's going to be fine. <laughs> the drum sound on that. It really is. It's probably the most dated thing in the entire REM. I'm just want to die. Um, and this is, this is a, a, a record with all this goodwill, plus they made them a lot of, you're not the only one, Scott, who this is your first REM record. Uh, this is when they broke through. It's their on Warners. The one I love made the top 10. It was on MTV all the time. The one I love is a very repetitive song that's not, frankly, that interesting. Um, uh, it, it sounds good, and you're happy to hear it. You rooted for it being on the radio. Like, oh, that's great. It's not near, it's not, It there are 20 songs better than that that they've already recorded that never got on the radio. And, it, and it's kind of a, uh, 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 a strange feeling there. Uh, it's the end of the world. We know it, uh, even though it's not an original uh, idea. Um, they just the exuberance of it is great, and it just it holds up, even though it does have some of those bad production values still. But we've already gone through, in my mind, the only songs worth a damn. He's exhuming McCarthy. He's now we're now getting into explicit Stipean politics, and nothing good happens there. That's, mm -hmm. that's when we're getting to, you know, if bushes were tree, trees would be fallen uh, territory for Michael Stipe. I prefer the Cuyahoga model, model the, uh, the fall on me model, the these days model, all of which are very political. Um, if you drill down, you know where the politics are, but they are the commitment is to the song and to the sound uh, above all and the, and the conveyance of emotion through maybe untraditional ways here. You know, uh, I, I don't give a about odd fellows local 151 behind yes. the firehouse i don't care about your dumb union you know what, <laughs> I, what are you doing why do i want to listen to this let alone for five minutes but uh, it's so. not even just that it's just like some of the other songs on that feel so generic like um welcome to the occupation again you know kind of wearing the politics on the sleeve i think i joked that you might as well have just called that song fall on my maps and legends it's just a rewrite of better material that they had already done before. I don't want to, by the way, dismiss the album entirely. There are good songs. It's the end of the world as we know it. I love it. Everyone loves it. I have no shame in saying that's a big hit that everyone knows that deserves its fame. I think Disturbance at the Heron House, I agree. I like Finest Work Song. Horrible snare drum sound and all. There's one other one that deserves to be singled out, uh, which is King of Birds. Yeah. Yep. One of these quiet, very folky ones, very much pointing the direction pointing towards the direction that they were about to turn somewhat unexpectedly and maybe even as a response to the sort of open commercialism of uh, document uh they were going to go in a very strange folk way very soon and king of birds is a preview of that very good song
rest of that album is such a step down from what they had done prior to that. And I throw this opinion at people, and like Matt, I am perplexed when they tell me that, oh, that document is one of their greatest records. No, it's not. Have you ever listened to any other R.E.M. albums? It's not. And it's not as good as what would be coming soon, too. Um, uh, I don't know how you guys feel about Green, uh, the major label debut. One thing I take Huge away... fan. Yeah, I, I listened to it again in preparation for the show, and something we I think we alluded to but didn't spend a ton of time on earlier is how important uh, Mike Mills is to the band and their sound, especially early on, that bass, just, just pushing things through. And on one of the big songs from Green, Orange Crush, it's like this, this whack upside the head to me of how important, again, Mills is. His bass just rumbles through Orange Crush, and of course he has uh, you know, that, that backing vocal uh, during, during the, uh, the verses as well that kind of propels the song forward. So you know, for me, Orange Crush is, is another reminder of how important Mike Mills is. To, to how REM operates. And I got to say, too, the other big single stand is, is I think it can be looked at as being a little slight, but it is one of those songs where no matter where I am, no matter, no matter what I'm doing, when I, when I hear that first, you know, 10 seconds or so, the intro of stand, I get, I literally, it happened again, I literally get chills up my spine because that song is so fun, it is so good, and I remember where I was the first couple times I heard it, like on XRT in Chicago, and it's just one of those songs that that that's, I think holds up very well. I, I love Stan. Stan to me is, uh, it's, it's got that shiny happy people thing, which is a song that I will defend. Um, it, it's uh, it's R.E.M. saying, look, we want to do a, just a happy, stupid pop song. <laughs> Get off us. You know, Michael Stipe famously had a habit of introducing Stand in concert by saying this is one of the great masterpieces of American music on par with <laughs> Albanoni's Adagio for Strings and Aaron Copeland. <laughs> so I think they had a pretty healthy sense of humor about what a goofy throwaway it was. I will defend that song as well. I will defend this album, too. I think the big problem that people have with Green is that it's it's two EPs that – ran into one another mm -hmm. in a head-on car crash mm -hmm. and got mixed together and sound very different from one another. On the one hand, you have a very commercial, you know, straight-ahead pop album kind of continuing with the hits from Document, like The One I Love and The End of the World as We Know It. You have that on songs like uh, Pop Song 89, <clears throat> on Get Up, on Orange Crush, on things like Turn You Inside Out. Um, and then, on the other hand, you have this visionary folk rock folk ep where peter buck pulls the mandolin out of the storage closet at the recording studio and decides he's going to take up a new instrument and everybody starts switching up you know their roles in right. the band i think right. i think bill you know bill barry got off drums and started playing guitar for these songs mm -hmm. so there's five songs on that record that are completely different from anything that the group had done prior to that point other than say swan swan hummingbird or king of birds it's the wrong child it's uh hair shirt it's uh, you are the everything um and particularly that last song which is i think in my opinion the one of the greatest songs that rem ever released it's a thing called the untitled 11th song because it doesn't have a name it's a hidden track it's just you know after i remember california fades out there's a, a new track and it's peter buck playing very clumsy drums to start 
and then it sounds like Christmas and, and you know, Stipe sings, this world is big, it's so awake. I stayed up late to hear your voice. Talk about songs that I had an emotional connection with. And I was in high school, you know, feeling my adolescent feels. That song was one of the most emotionally powerful things that I had ever heard because there was a purity of sentiment. There was a purity of emotion. When Stipe says, you know, I made a list of things to say, but all I want to say, all I really want to say is hold her and keep her strong while I'm away from here. It's about friendship. It's about love. It's about kindness. It's about all sorts of topics that really don't end, end up getting folded into rock songs. Or if they do, they are done awkwardly. And he handles it with a naif's honesty, almost like he is a child to the world. Uh, that It's very difficult to capture that feeling, capture that sentiment. I think actually, you know, as we talked about last week, Arcade Fire does a good job of getting to some of those feelings, especially on Funeral. I love that song more than I think I love any other R.E.M. song in their entire discography. Wow. I went back because of your tweet storm and, and re-listened to that and saw um, it, it hadn't made as strong of an impression of me yet at, in real time. And, uh, and your framing of the two different records and the folk one being kind of interesting, semi-rescues Green for me. But for me, Automatic, or not Automatic, but uh, uh, Document and Green are just this late 80s mush where there's kind of a lot of pedestrian uh, rock songs. Um, the politics are too obvious. Um, your orange crushes, your world leader pretend for crying out loud uh, enough. Like it starts, the preciousness starts to kind of. I don't of, hear world leader pretend as a political song, Matt. That's so funny that you hear it that way. Yeah, yeah. I, hear, uh, I, hear, I hear that as a song of self improvement. That's one of my another one of my favorite songs on the album. Well, then, uh, then it, there's new vistas of uh, of uh, interpretation open to me. Uh, potentially, <laughs> uh, but uh, uh, again, I, I had all this goodwill going uh, up into this little run. Uh, I I had in at the time I I'm sure I championed these things. Uh, recently, or uh, now a little bit more than a year ago, I moved houses, and sometimes when you move houses, you you know you have access to records that you haven't looked at, or you know oh I can play my cassettes now, I can play my my LPs now. Uh, and I got I got them all. Um, and so I had kind of an REM revival as part of that. And and I went through the let's give let's give green the old college. Right. I tried it with document and I don't think I could even last a uh, uh, a side. It was so infuriating. Uh, but uh, green listen to and I can I can kind of see what they're trying to do. But at the end, nothing actually really touches me. Political Beats is the uh, podcast you're listening to now. A presentation of National Review. Remember to subscribe, please, and leave us good ratings if you feel appropriate. iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, TuneIn, NationalReview.com as well on Mondays for new episodes. I'm Scott Bertram. He's Jeff Blair. And Matt Welch is with us, uh, at Matt Welch on Twitter, former editor-in-chief, current editor-at-large of Reason Magazine, co-host of We the Fifth Podcast. We're talking REM, and we come to... Uh, a massive album, Out of Time. And I don't know if this is my hot take for the episode, but here's what I'll what I'll argue is uh, for an album that sold whatever, 18 million copies uh, and won Grammys, I don't think Out of Time is a great record. Um, they, they toured their butts off on green, took a year off afterwards. 
uh, and came back on Out of Time. And in some ways, it sounds to me like a like a tired band. Um, you know, Losing My Religion is a tremendous song that people have heard so much that it loses its power a bit. I think. But on the rest of the uh, on the rest of the record, you know, you've got the uh, the, the first track with KRS One, a uh, radio song, which I don't think is a is a is an experiment pulled off very well. Um, no, that's unfortunate. Uh, belong, it's... Uh, I'm not a big fan of. Um, you've got um, Kate Pierce on two tracks who I love, but you know they're bringing in outside people to to come in. Um, Shiny Happy People is there, which. Uh, people uh i don't think it's their their best moment clearly but it, it is saved at the end of it i think the you know the last two two tracks right uh country feedback and me and honey which is one of the two kate pearson tracks uh outside of losing my religion might be the two best uh tracks on the album but i don't think out of time matches up with some of their best work and again for an album that sold a bazillion copies and won a lot of awards i, I don't think it's a great album Okay, Matt, are you gonna you gonna counter him? Or are you gonna put your love <laughs> in the ground where the flowers grow? <laughs> uh, you go you go right ahead. I I I this album meant a lot to me at the time. I experienced it uh, pretty heavily. I was living in Prague. Uh, it it broke uh, gigantic. Um, uh, we listened to it in the office, the newspaper I worked at, um, every day for a year, um, several times. I think it's the best sounding record. This and uh, and uh, Life Search Pageant are their most. It's most just pleasing to the ear as an overall sonic thing. It's radio song. It's it, it is retrospectively ridiculous. It was kind of ridiculous at the time, <laughs> but the actual sound of the organ, of the guitar, uh, of the little minor thing that they do near towards the end on the world is collapsing around our ears. The sound of uh, the recording of Michael Stipe's voice. It's beautiful. I mean, it, it's it is sonically, uh, it's just it's great. Even if you know, the, the rap is is totally ridiculous and kind of it's funny. It's a tragic waste of a fantastic melody and a fantastic recording. You take the rap out. That's a fine song. When I got to the show, yo oh oh, I could tell she had been crying, crying. It's that same same song. The DJ sucks. It's a fine song, and, and I'm even fine with just, like, go for it. It didn't quite work, but I was always a fan of KRS-One, and it's just kind of weird that they did it. And that also, to me, speaks to the times of uh, the early 90s. Go back, uh, and I think it's the 1993 uh, MTV Music Awards, either 93 or 94, but I think it's 93. Uh, where um, uh, my good friend and former co-host uh, Kennedy was out there, mm -hmm. uh, but look at where music wa was because all of this stuff. This the for people uh, of of my age, um, having this come out and go huge, and then having Nirvana come out and go huge, and even people like Jane's Addiction uh, breaking through, who are kind of part of the alternative track. It was like our generation was being ratified in some ways, and it was doing it on good art. It wasn't. I mean, Losing My Religion is a great, great song. Yes, it's been overplayed so much uh etc but itself it was it's a great song it, it we still are trying to wrap our heads around the the meaning of it um it, it means different things to different people but it's sonically beautiful to have all of that kind of break at once was 
uh, a very exciting time. And part of that, and going back to the MTV Music Awards, is that people didn't really know. It's kind of like the end of the Cold War. You didn't know how, where the world was going. <laughs> when alternative broke through and also when rap and hip hop started uh, not just breaking through, but maturing and, and creating crazy offshoots, you didn't know who was supposed to combine and who wasn't. Right. Like it might seem obvious now, like, I'm like, what are you doing there? But but like the attempt to do it, the nod in that direction, even though it kind of fails, um, I, I still find uh, pretty endearing. Out of time to me is that record that was beloved at the time. And then R.E.M. fans, you know, these there's hipster cliques, these things. And now it's very fashionable to sort of down on it and say, like, oh, I was that was the pop success that shouldn't have been. It's not really a very good album. Okay, I, I'll buy that there are some songs on there that are a bit disposable, but I think it's actually a, a very daring move in a lot of ways. Again, they had just signed a major label contract. Um, they put out an album that, in truth, is really weird mm -hmm. and has a lot of very, very non-commercial material. Well-produced, glowingly microphoned, well-sung, well-written, but non-commercial material – and yet they went to number one for the first time in their careers, and I gotta respect that. I look at songs that fall between the cracks, like Texarkana, is um, another Mike Mills song. This is one that almost didn't make the record because uh, they'd given it to Michael Stipe to sing, and Stipe wasn't feeling it. He wasn't really sure about the lyrics, so he said, "Ah, well, I don't know if I can do this." Mills handled it. It's just a sweeping. Another. He reminds me of that mode that that Matt was talking about on Fables of the Reconstruction. It's just rolling hills of grain, these vast, wide, open southern spaces uh, that they had really never returned to uh, up until that point and, and never quite captured again. In this case, that, that sense is conjured in, in many ways by the strings and also, again, by Mills's bass. But then Me and Honey is there, and Belong is a song that I will defend unto the death. Scott, you said you didn't like it. Yeah. It is... It is my sad duty to inform you that you are wrong. <laughs> um, belong is a brilliant and daring conceit that comes off perfectly. For, for those who aren't aware, this is a song without a melody. Michael Stipe literally just speaks the words. He mm -hmm. says, you know, the world collapsed on Sunday. She gathered her friends and ran. To the... It's a kind of a very elusive and indirect way of telling a story about a young child, maybe even like you think of an autistic child or a, a maladjusted child who is gathered into her mother's arms and protected and told that you are loved, you belong, you are special, you are someone. It's a very difficult conceit to even conceive of, to write about, much less to, to deliver, to bring off. And the beautiful music in the background, these soaring harmonies by Mike Mills, I think he's harmonizing with himself five times. I think Bill Berry may be singing there as well. It's just the kind of thing that they could never really play live. It's pure album track, but it's such a wonderful, graceful conceit. And I respect them so much for having the balls to try it. Um, Beyond that, I'm willing to speak up every now and then when you catch me unawares or maybe after a few drinks for shiny, happy people. But if you quote me on that, I'm going to tell you that you're lying. Here's how uh, that you can defend it on two levels. One is that uh, um, Kate Pearson's uh, vocals just are beautiful. I mean, yes. Her voice sounds great. They're recorded great and all this kind of stuff. But most importantly, it's the Mike Mills dip, 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 dip <laughs> at the end.
like apropos of nothing. It's, it's just so it's so nerdy. I love it. Nerdy. It's his Mike. This is the ultimate Mike Mills record. Right? I was going like, to say, well, Mills did two vocals on this record because he did uh, Near Wild Heaven, too. And he did, yeah, and he never did and another he, one right, again. That's what I was going to say. D d have you read anything about why he never sang lead vocals again? Because, again, his his vocals are so pure and so different from Stipe, certainly. And the songs he tackles, he does really, really well in the R.E.M. canon. If you don't like Near Wild Heaven, you probably don't like cute babies and dogs. <laughs> I don't. I don't understand how you can dislike that song. Good point. Um, My, I don't know anything about it, so I will speculate wildly. Um, is that uh, it was their most popular record by far? Uh, Mike Mills had two vocals, so that was the end of Mike Mills getting vocals. <laughs> <laughs> just knowing how bands work uh, yeah. that's my guess um, and also that this and this is an important thing rem one of the reasons why they were so successful and also so compelling was that they were really a four-headed unit and and, and actually i think the dissolution of the band or the decline of it um uh, dates in large part to bill barry um uh, right uh exiting and, and also getting more fragile as they go on even when he was in it um, and with the advent of MTV and their kind of career as video artists in heavy rotation, in addition to just being like art nerds from Athens trying to to do weird stuff, um, but like Losing My Religion, the video is a, it's a gorgeous and interesting thing. But all of this requires Stipe to be the lead singer guy um, in a way that uh, and that that's also coinciding with. Um, you know, his vocals becoming more prominent, more understandable, more plaintive in, in some cases. So all of this coinciding with a big hit record that Mike Mills uh, scores a couple on, um, <laughs> I, I wouldn't be surprised if that had something to do with it not happening again. Which leads me to one of my favorite REM anecdotes of all time. So as it as it happens to be the case, after Green and after Out of Time, REM had decided that they'd had enough of all of this chamber folk nonsense we need to go out there and record the biggest, <laughs> hardest rocking record that yeah. we have ever done. We're going balls out, amplifiers up. We're going to rock like we used to rock back in the good old days. They went out there. They wrote the songs. They recorded the songs. And what they came up with was Automatic for the People, the most somber, <laughs> slow, chamber folk record R.E.M. would ever record. I don't know how they started out with that goal and ended up with that record, but I'm grateful for it. I'm glad too. Most times it's bands say that, you know, that you go through the bios and the stories about bands through their history. Most times when they say, you know, we got to just got to get back to rocking like we did when we were young. The result is, is awful. Uh, subpar. Uh, as we shall see as soon. we shall see soon but automatic for the people i'm so glad it ended up the way it did because this is a magnificent magnificent record and much like i remember where i was the first time i, I heard stan i literally came i was standing in my kitchen when uh when the radio station in chicago debuted drive and it was nothing like out of time stuff it was nothing like green it wasn't stand or, or orange crush it was it's haunting uh, melody with strings, and I loved it. I loved it immediately. And uh, the, the rest of the album is fantastic. Uh, Jeff really turned me on to Sweetness uh, Follows during his tweet storm from a couple of, of months ago. Bill Berry, uh, who had a huge hand in, in uh, Man on the Moon, that's a great track. Sidewander Sleeps Tonight, which I understand the band, or at least Michael Stipe, doesn't like. I, I've read a few instances where it's been it's been poor mouthed. But Sidewander Sleeps Tonight is is fantastic. Much much like uh, uh, Superman from Life's Rich Pageant. There's a, there's a joy, 
and that organ that that powers its way through the song, uh, that moment when when Michael Stipe uh, chuckles to himself at the very end of the third verse. Uh, the fact that no one really knows what that chorus is until you have to look it up and then you try to squeeze those words in the way that Stipe does. Um, but, you know, the themes of aging and death and loss and the the production, uh, the atmospheric production and the strings, Automatic for the People is a beautiful record, really unlike anything they'd done before. I think 99% of people who listen to the Sidewinder Sleeps Tonight still don't realize that the <laughs> Sidewinder they're referring to is the old coiled telephone cord of a landline phone. Um, because, of course, especially in these days, nobody uses landlines anymore. But uh, that's always been one of my favorite songs on an album that is otherwise known for its, obviously, sort of funereal solemnity. And I don't understand for the for my life why they would have ever considered excluding it or why they're ashamed of it to this day um but you know what i i could talk about this forever i want to turn it over to matt matt say something controversial about automatic for the people be that <laughs> I'm at the guy center. i don't be I, that guy i don't think that it's one of their five best records mm. um i uh wow. you're that guy i'm that guy <laughs> um, we always take it a turn being that guy at some point during this podcast um, it's it it's like the previous effort. It sounds uh, it sounds beautiful. The recording is beautiful. So I appreciate uh, that element of it. Uh, it should never be uh, dismissed. Coming right out of the gate with snap, crack, bush, whack, tie another to the rack, baby, is like ten things I don't like about Michael Stipe in ten words. <laughs> like, <laughs> Right. Like the a reference to another damn Bush. I know. Look, I never liked the Bushes too much either. But just like stop being clever with that name. It's just enough. Like get over it. Like do do something different with that or express it in a way that is different, please. Yeah. Um, Once you got to track nine, you must have been really pleased. Uh, the <laughs> the uh, 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 the baby stuff like uh, uh, which, uh, you know, comes back on a man on the moon when you're goofing on Elvis. Hey, baby, um, which is appropriate for the song. Uh, I've always been, um, uh, a little bit, uh, allergic or felt it nails on chalkboardy when Stipe was kind of uneasily, um, dealing with elements of Americana culture. Um, like on, uh, dead letter office collection B sides earlier in their career, when they're doing like uh, King of the Road by Roger Miller, like he really puts on a ridiculous Southern accent that you know <laughs> that he kind of had or has or definitely in the repertoire, but he felt he always had this sort of sense of, of, of like lampooning it, never having the courage to just like come out and do uh, a pretty straight uh, country song with the exception of maybe Rockville uh, out there. Mm -hmm. And in Rockville, they had, a, an, I think, an uneasy relationship with that song whether because it was countrified or whether just because it was too popular and they're, you know, 80s, 90s nerds who had weird relationships with popularity. But all of that, the sort of the, the baby, um, uh, that is not my favorite Stipe. Uh, the, you know, uh, the, vo the Voices of Harold, uh, you know, uh, version of the, uh, of um, Seven, uh, Chinese Seven Chinese Brothers. Chinese Brothers. 
um, uh, which is funny and it's great. It's a great little document and the story behind it, which uh, is, is people should go look at is, is all that is, is fun. But anyways, it encapsulates all these things about Stipe that I, I, that I sort of have a, a suspicion of. Um, and so I think a, a lot of these songs are just like B pluses <laughs> and Bs, you know, Sidewinder Sleeps Tonight is, is, is kind of cloyingly oh. cute. Uh, Man on the Moon, um, it's just, it's it's too obvious. It's Mr. Andy Kaufman, you know, like it's, it, there's, I, I want more artifice in my art than, than I'm getting. Night Swimming, I'm starting to feel like, uh, how many times is he going to, I mean, how many times are we going to play replay gardening at night? Like some weird, you know, thing to say about night in a way that's slightly odd and, and Southern Gothic. Uh, so a lot of, uh, of the elements that maybe were charming in 1983 now even though they're dressed up in pretty good but not great songs recorded beautifully at a time that they're popular the the whole combination of it kind of leaves me a little bit empty and there's one exception to this um and ignore land is a terrible song um let's just let's be honest they're, they're trying to do a big rock song <laughs> a big like rock a big song. political song like, yeah and ignore land people don't even care like, shut up all right, enough. <laughs> um, but uh, Everybody Hurts um, is, I think, a legitimately uh, phenomenal and actually daring song because it just is what it is. It is Everybody Hurts Sometime. I'm trying to cheer you up, get off the ledge. And it's a beautiful uh, song. Um, uh, it's, uh, I, as a, a musician over my life, I am the opposite of what you might call uh, someone who... Uh, you know, can just sort of riff or or do something unplanned. I'm just not good enough uh, to do any of that. Uh, but I was once in a, a band in uh, Prague, and it was a super huge gig, playing in front of like 400, 500 people in in a club. People were paying attention. Uh, it was a three piece, right? So I'm the only guy in guitar, and I'm not that great of a guitar player at all. <laughs> um, but the guys that I play with are they can roll with it sometimes. And uh, in order to inhabit the moment, I just started playing the first chords and the first opening to Everybody Hurts, which we had never once practiced as a goof. We probably had never listened to as a goof, but it was like, you know, it was 1993 or four. Um, this was the song that was in, in people's minds. And it's a great song. And it's like a grunge song at heart. Like it's just, it's plaintive wail out there. Totally honest, no artifice. Um, and uh, we, we pulled it off despite never having played it. And I didn't really know what the chords were, but they can't be all that hard. I think that's a legitimately great song. Everything else, not quite there. And the overall effect is like, I think this, we're starting to go downhill. Okay. Well, you, congratulations, by the way, on being that guy. That, that's was. a bold, bold stance to take. And someone needed to do it. <laughs> I am going to be not that guy. I think this is the, one of their best albums. It's probably one of their two greatest albums, in my opinion. I, I often ask myself, well, what kind of pain must Michael Stipe have been in? What kind of mood must the band have been in to come up with this music? Maybe they just got carried along by what they felt the best arrangements for these songs were. Maybe not. I don't understand how somebody could write a song like Sweetness Follows without experiencing true sadness, true tragedy in their life. Um, it's one of the most moving things that R.E.M. has ever done. It's, again, probably one of my top five favorite songs by them. It's a song that opens. Literally, the opening couplet is... Readying, readying to bury your mother and your father. What would you think if you lost another? And it gets darker from there. It is 
a song where I ask myself, there, there are songs that I admire so much that I, that I, I find myself kind of thrown so off kilter by that I say, well, how did they even come up with the idea to do this? Ready and to bury your father and your mother. What did you think when you lost another? I used to wonder why did you bother? Distance from one to the other. Listen here, my sister and my Peter Gabriel was another artist who I really like. As a solo artist, he, he, he came up with quite a few songs. Family Snapshot being a great example of one where I was just like, how the hell did you get the idea to come up with a song based around this premise? A song about burying your family members and realizing that there's more to life than feuding with your loved ones and the people who are you close to you and then casting it to that music. That's a song I admire. That's a song I will forever wonder at the serendipity that it was made, that it came together the way it did. And it is possible that because of my love for that one song on Automatic for the People, that I overrate the rest of the album. I don't know if I do. Ignore Land is one of those embarrassing overreaches where, okay, it's it's almost like as if they, they had another song on the record called It's a Free World Baby that was much more in tune with it, and then they cut it off, and they put on Ignore Land because they felt we have to have at least one up-tempo rocker, mm-hmm. and it was embarrassingly political. It's the kind of thing that everybody looks at as the, the great blemish on an otherwise tonally united album. But I think of Try Not to Breathe. I think of Monty Got a Raw Deal. Even the the weird instrumental, the, the New Orleans instrumental, number one, the, everything fits together. It comes together in a mood. Man in the Moon, okay, yeah, on the nose with the Andy Kaufman stuff. But again, the music says things to me that the lyrics don't. And I think Matt has a tendency uh, to focus on lyrics in a way that I don't, which is perfectly valid. It, it, I'm just not wired that way. I respond to the musical uh, tonalities before I think about the lyrics, so I can ignore bad ones. So I, I don't get the lyrical issues. I didn't even think of, until he pointed it out, that Bushwhacked was uh, a Bush reference in Drive. I was just like, okay, that's a snap, crack, Bushwhacked. Okay, whatever. I just didn't even make that connection until this literal second, which means that maybe I'm a naif, or maybe it means that I'm better equipped to appreciate this sort of stuff simply because I don't care about the political messages or I can screen them out. I find this album to be dark, very depressing, but it deals with death, loss, with resignation, with sadness in a way that is shockingly mature. It's not, it doesn't rage. There's no pettiness. It's resigned. It looks ahead. It tries to find hope in sadness and in grief. That's a very strange approach for a major rock band to take on one of the most anticipated releases of the year of their career. And I will always respect them for having done that. Political Beats here at uh, National Review. Subscribe for new episodes. iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher. Tune in. Monday mornings is when you find them. Scott Bertram. Jeff Blair uh, alongside, and Matt Welch is with us, former editor-in-chief, current editor-at-large, Reason Magazine, at Matt Welch on Twitter. We're talking R-E-M. 
from Automatic for the People, we do get the loud record. Uh, is anyone going to be that guy? And defend. You mean the guy that defend monster? monster? Yes. Oh, Anyone no, gonna? No. Are you sure? Okay. Uh, I will tell you of my history of defending monster because it's the history of me uh, basically breaking paths, diverging paths with REM. Ultimately, <laughs> tell me. Um, yeah. I uh, I have written very little about music uh, in my life. Maybe five record reviews, but I was assigned to review this um, uh, at a newspaper. And um, at the time, I was living a pretty nocturnal life. And so I um, went into the newspaper office at around 11 o'clock in the evening, um, probably with some things to, to, to help me uh, through the night and uh, and listened to this as loud as humanly possible, just reverberating the walls uh, over and over again, like eight times in a row. Um, and context being uh, something that uh, uh, Matthew Sweet once uh, said, uh, after Kurt Cobain killed himself, we didn't know where the music was supposed to go. Um, I, that kind of resonates with me. Like it's, it wasn't clear the next kind of direction. Was grunge really a thing? And if so, is that is that going to be the thing? Well, in retrospect, kind of no uh, is the answer to that question. But we just didn't know what, what's going to replace it. Um, there is some theory largely in my own head, but that uh, in uh, Nirvana's Unplugged record with the nod towards playing The Man Who Sold the World, um, sort of nods in the direction of glam, um, mm -hmm. uh, that glam was going to be the next place to go. And so it was interesting for R.E.M. to come out and go as glam as they were going to get. Uh, you know, Mike Mills got dressed up. That's how glam they got uh, for the monster thing. They plugged in their guitars. I'm a fan of the rock, so uh, in the way the Lysitch pageant is sort of pleasing to me because the you know there's some fuzz in that guitar i like it so i listened to it eight times in a row the guitars are plugged in i like that it was a nod towards kind of that t-rex glam uh type of thing crush with eyeliner mm -hmm. you have uh you know michael stipe talking about sex pretty explicitly which is pretty uh, new for him so like why not that sounds like something you do bang and blame uh there's other kind of uh, echoes or references or feelings like he is kind of um trying to grapple with his own uh, relationship with both Cobain dying and his personal relationship with Courtney Love. I listened to it all. I wrote a positive review. I have never listened to the record again. It means nothing to me. Um, and I, I realized I talked myself into it as you do. You as hack! <laughs> as you do uh, uh, at the time. It made sense. Uh, yeah. I can still hear What's the Frequency, Kenneth? And even though it's a stupid topic of a song, um, I still kind of like the sound of it, but ultimately, I think the thing itself is disposable. Yes. It's 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 not dis it's not indispensable at all. And it was a nod and a gesture that didn't feel lived in and real. They were they were searching for something that they didn't get uh, there. And uh, I think it's it, it is uh, the the real kind of beginning of the end of them having their finger on whatever it was. And let's keep in mind, like uh, you know, I I, I think like uh, the greatest of of uh, athletes. If a band has a 13 year run, oh boy, not many people can can be a great baseball player for 13 years, 14 years. Mm -hmm. uh, so that's where they were at at this point in their career. I think this is where the drop happens. I want to. You said it's disposable, and it's it's just great because I, I have written down here. It sounds good once, monster, and to that end, 
Um, I, I shopped at a ton of used CD stores through the 90s, picking yes. up old stuff that I didn't have or new things I did. One thing you could count on going into any used CD store in 1995 or 1996 was that they would have approximately 14 copies of Monster that people had bought and then turned in for two bucks cash so they could turn around and get the new Everclear album or whatever they're going to buy, right? Um Monster sounds good once. It's, I mean, Crush with Eyeliner. That's a song that sonically is interesting and it sounds good. I don't know if I want to hear it again. <laughs> so I'm going to sell the album. Um, I, I, I think so much of, of Monster is that way. It sounds good once. It's disposable. It's gone. I go to bat for one song on Monster, and that's Strange Currencies. Um I fully admit that it's somewhat of a rewrite of of Everybody Hurts. In fact, uh, the band apparently had to rewrite the melody because it was too close to Everybody Hurts before it made the album. And I also fully acknowledge that the lyrics are fairly straightforward for, you know, for for a Michael Stipe song. But the melody is just gorgeous. The uh the, the lyrics again are, are fairly transparent, straightforward, but you know, trying to convince someone that they are your world and that you should be together and then toward the end of the song asking for that one ray of hope that that dumb and dumber so you're telling me there's a chance kind of thing. Just give me give me a sign that this might work out. The combination of those lyrics, that melody really is powerful. I'm a I'm a big fan of strange currencies. Though I'm not a fan of Monster. I need a chance, a second chance, a third chance, a fourth chance, a word, a signal, not a little breath, just to fool myself, catch myself, make it real, real. This world, you will be mine. This world. As Scott alluded to, Monster is the most returned album of all time. <laughs> which is uh, pretty much its epitaph. I don't have much to say about it other than I think it's uh, their second major failure. And I'm actually very glad that they ended up putting out a masterpiece after this record or else you're right. You could have just said this was the beginning of the end for them. This is where they collapsed because there's almost nothing on this album of any worth. I'll defend Strange Currencies. I'll defend I Don't Sleep, I Dream. I'll defend Star 69 as kind of a fun, thrashy little, you know, insubstantial rock song. I don't even like what's the frequency Kenneth that much. I don't know how they face planted so hard after, you know, so many albums from murmur all the way up through automatic for the people. Yeah. I talked about how I didn't like document document still was an accomplished record. Even if a lot of it was generic sounding slop Mur monster sounds like, like they just let go of their quality control. It was, it was shockingly bad to me both at the time when I first heard it, 1993, 94, and uh, even now, you know, as a confirmed REM fan, serious one who's tried to give that record as many listens as I can. You know, like, like Matt says when he talks about, hey, I'm going to go back and I'm going to give Document or a Green another listen. No, I, I've, I've tried with Monster, and it, it's just a failure in every respect. Why do you think? Why do you guys? I mean, you guys are, are are a little more hardcore fans than I am of REM. What what happened? What happened to Faceplant so severely for a band that had such a great winning streak through its through its career? I think they tried to pretend that they were something that they were not. 
I think that the next album is New Adventures in Hi-Fi. I think New Adventures in Hi-Fi is maybe the most underrated record that R.E.M. ever released. I think it's a genuine masterpiece. It's a bit too long. They put too much material on it. They should have edited some of it. But it's a much more natural and graceful development from what they were doing uh, with Out of Time and Automatic on the People uh, into a more rocky sound as they reaccustomed themselves to live performance than Monster was. Monster was them just saying, well, we got to rock out. And they literally put aside strings and they put aside pianos and they said, well, any of that stuff, we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna just be a rock act now, a simple four-piece but they had neglected to realize that that's no longer who they had been. They had evolved. And evolutions just can't simply be summarily reversed. They, you, you can't wind back time. They had wandered a very long path to get from murmur through fables to life's rich pageant to document to green out of time automatic. They had become a different group in the meantime. And trying to snap back into some, well, now we're a grunge act felt artificial and it felt forced and it showed in the songwriting the songwriting the the arrangements might have you know been bad but you know if the songwriting had been there you could save it the songwriting was just poor yeah i I mean i have some sympathy for people who uh recording artists who want to tack into a different direction part of songwriting in general uh and the reason why it's a young man's game is not just uh or young woman's game is not just that you feel uh, a lot of the topics that you end up singing about more intensely at age 23 than you do at age 46. Um, that and that's definitely true, and you're driven by certain things that that those drives uh, those drives change. But also when you're young and you experience for the first time a D minor chord, you go, "Holy sh- look at that D minor!" I'm gonna I'm gonna write a whole song around this thing. My God, you can imagine, you know, Peter Buck as soon as he uh, figured out like how to do the little birds uh, deedaloo 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 <laughs> thing on a Rickenbacker. He said, "My God, that's interesting. I'm gonna get five years of recording out of this one insight." Um, so once you get to some kind of successful formula, and I think out of time and automatic for the people have more in common. Um, uh, they, they sound pretty similar uh, overall sheen, even though there's definitely some differences with it too. And they're successful. And you're, uh, you know, again, in years 10, 11, 12, um, I have some sympathy for like wanting to shake that thing up uh, because you're afraid that you're just going to be mailing it in. The Stones could have uh, theoretically kept making, you know, uh, 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 it's only rock and roll over and over again. I'm glad they tried a little disco. You know, like get in there, do some disco. Um, some of those songs are pretty good, you know. Uh, and so the impulse is fine, uh, but Jess, absolutely right. Like, you got to have some conviction there and you got to have some songs, and those songs just uh, just uh, aren't it. I think maybe having been off the road for so long hurt them. You're trying to be a rock band, but you haven't been playing live to audiences and you haven't been playing electric guitars for so long that you don't really understand how the most effective way to use them particularly in this environment is i think that's oh, the one reason why the new adventures is a much better record what were you saying uh, i'm sorry uh yeah just uh now that you think about that what think for a second what's the kind of signature uh element of of what we associate with grunge, but just sort of alt music with heavy guitars from the late 80s to the time that Monster came around or to the time that Nirvana stopped. There are two things I would I would say are part of that. One is 
dynamics, the Pixies thing. Like it starts off quiet and then the same chords just stomp on the pedal and it's super loud and you're thrashing around. Uh, that's it's one. Tame, yeah. Uh, and the other is uh, is these kind of like a crazy, um, you know, uh, bridges in unexpected, you know, A major sharps, this chord. That's just a grunge chord for some reason. I don't know why it is. It, like <laughs> that, that was in so many song, songs. It is. Um, if you think, uh, if you don't go back and listen to it by any means, but if you just sort of think of the feeling that you had with Monster, just being overwhelmed by the color orange, um, it, that... <laughs> It's the same guitar sound. There are no dynamics there. There might be a little bit mm -hmm. of a, uh, you know, a tremolo pedal here and there, but it's overall just the same exact sustain distortion everywhere. There's not really much of uh, of a dynamic there, and you don't have these uh, surprise kind of twists. So if it was, they're making a a nod towards either a, a grunge direction or even just a. Uh, uh, a pure glam play uh, from the 70s they lack both glam was super catchy um this isn't and grunge had dynamics and a major sharps and this did i feel like they ended up making a bad stooges album <laughs> yes <laughs> uh political beats here uh scott bertram jeff blair and uh, matt welch talking rem uh, Jeff had talked a bit about New Adventures in Hi-Fi. I know that that's one that you enjoy uh, quite a bit. That was end of an era, right? That was Bill Berry's last album. Uh, yep. He, he left the band, and then we get this kind of long uh, long fade uh, up, reveal around the sun, accelerate, collapse into now. Uh, you know, I don't want to discount all of them completely. I think up is a little underrated. I like uh, 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 Lotus from, from that album. Reveal as a couple of highlights. I dig all the way to Reno. There's a nice Beach Boys-esque track called Beach Ball on Reveal, which is pretty decent. Was the writing on the wall that this was what was going, the path they were going to take? Did the departure of, of, of their drummer, uh, was that a, a, a bigger factor than anyone could have anticipated in those last few albums? It didn't have to be. It didn't have to be. So the story, of course, is that they, R.E.M. recorded Monster because they wanted to get back out on the road with a rock record, and they put out a really crappy rock record to do it. Then they get on the road, and suddenly in the middle of a gig in Switzerland, I think at Lausanne or something like that, Bill Berry collapses with a brain aneurysm. It's a terrifying situation. And he, as he said many times, he says, I'm just glad that we were in Switzerland when it happened because there's approximately 400 top-level hospitals in the area, mm -hmm. and they saved his life. And he continued on with the tour afterwards. And then they recorded and released New Adventures in Hi-Fi, which is, I think, their their last truly great album. Not the close of their, their worthwhile era, but their last truly great record. But after that, he decided to retire uh, for health reasons, among other things. Maybe he just wanted to spend more time with his tractor. He, he has a farm, and he likes to just go ride around and do farm-like things. Got to kind of respect that attitude. You know, I'm a rock star. I don't need to keep riding this carousel until I die. I'm going to just go home. Um, but what it leaves you with is an uncertain legacy. You have New Adventures in Hi-Fi, which I think is the experimental rock record that Monster should have been really underrated. It has some of the finest songs, certainly the finest love song that R.E.M. has ever written in B Mine.
Mine is uh, Mike Mills basically wrote most of that track, and it is very starts very quiet. It builds. It has one of the finest and most well observed devotional lyrics that Michael Stipe has ever written or sung. And uh, nobody knows it unless they have the album. There's other things on that. There's a song called Leave, which is basically set to a car horn, uh, an ongoing car horn that blares, goes woo, 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 and they build a song around it. And it's a really effective seven-minute-long drone rock piece. You've got more traditional stuff like Electrolyte, Bittersweet Me, um, Wake Up Bomb, New Test Leper. This is a very good album that people don't talk about nearly enough. Then you have Up. Up was the album they did in reaction to Barry leaving. And if they had continued to go in that direction, they might have been a much more interesting band than the last decade of their career. Up is so depressed. It is the most inert album of R.E.M.'s entire career, even more so than Automatic for the People. And I love it for that. Up sounds like everyone has taken Vicodin. Everybody is hugely depressed people are literally just standing there making small cuts on the wrists in the bathroom mirror as they record and it has an attitude and a personality that is unique in the rem discography lotus is actually one of the songs i like least on that record i think the things that really stand out to me are walk unafraid or falls to climb uh you're in the air day sleeper hope Hope, which is basically a Leonard Cohen song uh, called Suzanne that's been repurposed by R.E.M. There is a sound of a band trying to adjust to a loss of one of its core members and doing a heroic job of it that I respect so much about Up that completely was thrown out the window with the rest of R.E.M.'s albums particularly Reveal and Around the Sun, which everybody agrees is an, is an absolute nadir for them, and Accelerate and Collapse into Now are slight improvements. But at that point, you had to ask yourself, no, was R.E.M. really relevant anymore? No, and I think that's why they decided to pack it up and say, you know what, why continue to do this if we're not adding to our legacy? We're only subtracting from it. I would have, uh, uh, I think, leaving after up or new adventures would have been an interesting play i, I think up especially because like we yeah we can do it without bill well it's sort of it'll be weird uh it'll be the pleasing art for ourselves i think they uh i, I follow mike mills on uh, twitter and he's pretty generous there about talking about uh, his career and the band and uh and all of that and i i think that they enjoy those records or, or find them to be uh 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 artistic in ways that they recognize that their fans aren't necessarily with them. Um, but I do think Bill Berry, uh, wasn't, was the conscience of the band, um, in some way. And, uh, you know, it's a weird, by the time we're talking about the late nineties here, um, uh, it's type now is, uh, this iconic figure, uh, Peter Buck, uh, I don't know exactly when he moved to Seattle, but he moved to Seattle and started making scenes on airplanes and, <laughs> like hanging out with younger bands and kind of going through his midlife crisis. Uh, Mike Mills was always going to be the kind of glue to keep everything together and like the secret genius musician out of all of them, um, arguably. Um, but I think Bill Berry is the one who could tell all of them like, no, nah, mm -mm, that ain't good enough. He even did that with the record that I love the most, Fables Reconstruction. I, uh, it, it might be apocryphal, but the story is after this, he said, okay, we do another one like that. 
um, that's 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 enough. I'm gonna I'm gonna get get on the tractor. Uh, let's let's go uh, let's go do something. We can't just be all gloom here. Uh, <laughs> that should be one of <laughs> one of like the go-to phrases that people use for ducking out of a bad situation. I'm gonna yeah. get on the tractor. <laughs> get on the tractor here. Um, and without that, and and there's contemporaneous interviews with the band that the, they will say versions of the same thing. Like they were kind of lost in ways that they didn't expect uh, when Barry left. Uh, yes, they had been this this strong foursome. Yes, that got the d- dynamics began to, to change with fame and MTV and um, uh, success and all this kind of stuff. But still, they were those four dudes. Um, he leaves, you know, they had one to prove uh, and that's up. Uh, but it, it just isn't the same, I think. Um, so I, I would like someone, preferably Jeff, to uh, comb through those last four or five records <laughs> for me, even though he and I, you know, always differ on the on, on the songs that uh, we love the most by the bands that we share in common, which is a pretty <laughs> great thing. Um, I, w- I want someone to curate that for me. I if you knew Adventures in Hi-Fi, they came out, gave it a workout a few times. I'm like, OK, don't eat it. Um, and uh, and I will occasionally I was uh, driving covering the Libertarian Party uh campaign god help me uh last year through the midwest at some point and i found a copy of up like just uh on uh at a stoop sale or a stoop giveaway here in brooklyn i'm like okay surely if i'm driving across indiana i'm gonna listen to up and i'm going to love this because it's rem and it's music and i'm in a car oh but it was such a downer (laughs) uh i like downers dude i mean i like i uh, we were talking on twitter you and i I think about richard and linda thompson's shoot out the lights as being the uh the song the record of our year speaking of which I did not know until that little uh, Twitter conversation um, when Jesse Walker, who's forgotten more about music than most of us will ever learn, said, well, hey, uh, did you ever hear R.E.M.'s version of Wall of Death? Um, yes. And I highly recommend it to people because it's, it's, it is a super out front, confident country song um, with yeah. pedal steel guitar um, that inhabits... Uh, where these guys are from in a way that I wish they could have done with the same level of competence and not like, uh, you know, nervously putting their tongue in their cheek during their career. Uh, You know, I I think there's something to be said because R.E.M. was the first through the door in college rock and alternative rock. um, So influential to so many people. I mean, don't forget the the replacements left of the dial. One of the great songs off their uh, great damn you, Jeff record, uh, Tim um, is basically about R.E.M. Like R.E.M. is their hero um, uh, to the point where they're playing on let it or Peter Buck's playing on let it be. So they're the first through all of that. They definitely had this kind of birds guitar feel, if not quite harmonic feel, even though they could sing harmonies, it was just different the way they, they managed them and everything. They were of the country. Um, uh, even if they stopped playing uh, too much uh, in, in the way of country. I think that they paved the way for alt country, for Wilco, for Sunbolt, for all those guys, <clears throat> without ever really playing that type of music themselves. The instrumentation is there and this kind of stuff, but they never really did it. The exception of that is Wall of Death. You listen to that and you go, my God, they kind of were or could have been. Uh, and and I, I would have liked to see more, and maybe it exists and I haven't found it because I kind of dropped off the map with them. That kind of late career uh comfortableness in their own skin you can go with the crazy people in the cooking house you can't fly away on the rocket or spin in the mouth the tunnel of love might amuse you Noah's heart might 
like, yeah, we can do things. Let's just throw some covers and play, make them beautiful. Or let's just play our own music that's pleasing to our own ears. They did a Beach Boys knockoff, um, a couple uh, um, uh, towards the end of their career. Uh, I uh, Smile, I Like to Make You Smile, uh, which was too conscious for my take, uh, self-conscious for my take uh, as a Beach Boys fan. But still, it's a beautiful song. And it's them just messing around with genre. Um, that would have been a nice way to kind of uh, to go out. Um, instead of the whole like late career picks uh, issue, but you know whatever you can't like I, like an athlete you can't ever plot out how you're going to exit the stage gracefully. Uh, it's about that time of the show, I believe, where we should uh, invite our guest and uh, both of us to identify the two albums that everyone should own and the five tracks that people should hear from a band with as uh, long and. Uh, um, an impressive discography of REM, I understand this might be a chore. Uh, we allow our guests to go first. Uh, Matt, if you would. Murmur, as Mike Mills will tell you, that is the record that uh, tells you the most important things that you need to know about this band. I don't know what those things are to this day. That's part of what makes them interesting. Um, go listen to it. It's a remarkable uh, document, a, a still weird, inscrutable, beautiful, simple record and the other one for me is fables the reconstruction um don't necessarily have to agree with me on it um but give it a listen it sounds like nothing else out there it's indispensable certainly in my life uh through a lot of different uh phases and uh it it speaks to a level of atmospherics that you almost never get uh in uh pop or rock music it's a masterpiece um song wise uh i'd go through chronological order sitting still which is off murmur um and there's a, a various uh, uh, earlier versions sitting around there's an urgency to it an emotion you have no idea what he's talking about it just sounds like classic rem and it'll be something that you probably haven't heard a lot south central rain uh i don't think gets enough credit for just being a a great song it's one of the better just damn songs uh and also has some road stuff and southern stuff and a nice big riff it's worth it fall on me for uh being an obscure beach boys ripoff uh and also <laughs> being the band's favorites uh and and just kind of a beautiful interesting thing and then i would go with uh, losing my religion i'll go i'll go tradition and everybody hurts um late era one of they're both plaintive in their way one of them you can kind of understand the other one you can't uh, get at immediately but they're beautiful and just because they're popular doesn't mean that they don't still have value and a uh, capability to astonish uh i'll go let jeff uh, uh finish things up um the albums i went back and forth a bunch i i i do think reckoning uh their second album the the best capture of them you know the live sound the full band sound uh, the first couple of tracks on that album are just killer racketing. And uh, Automatic for the People, I would also say, is one that people should uh, should own later career. And again, I think a, a highlight. Um, songs, uh, Pretty Persuasion from, from Reckoning. Um, I can't get there from here, uh, from Fables, if, if nothing else than just for the chorus, which is near perfect. Um, begin the Begin from Life Rich, Life's Rich Pageant. Sidewinder sleeps tonight from Automatic for the People, and I, I went to bat for it individually from an awful album, and so I'll also place this here. Go, go, uh, go! Give Strange Currencies a listen to, uh, Jeff. Well, 
I'm going to have to go with the two major ten poles of R.M.'s discography. Murmur, as we've all mentioned, is one of the finest debut albums ever recorded, one of the most confident ones. And then, of course, there's Automatic for the People, which is the late career album that I consider to be nearly the equal of Murmur. And what amazes me so much is that it's the same band, the same four members, the same songwriting chemistry. Everything about this group is the same. Nothing about these two albums sounds the same. It is perfect testimony to how a group of people working together, staying together over a very long career can evolve organically into a completely different set of sounds that is equally as valid, equally as moving, equally as compelling. So those two are the ones that, to me, explain everything that R.E.M. was ever about, both the beginning and in the later stages of the career. As for the songs... First one I'll say is Wolves Lower. It's the first song off their first EP. It absolutely captures the entire conceit of what early R.E.M. was trying to be about, from the arpeggiated guitars to the mysterious and inscrutable lyrics to the crickets that are somehow picked up humming in the background because they recorded the vocals outside. So when Michael Stipe and Mike Mills sing House in Order, and then Stipe goes, ah, you hear the hum of crickets go in the background. Listen very carefully. That's Southern Mystery for you. Laughing is the next one I would choose. My favorite song off of R.E.M.'s most important album, Murmur, I still don't understand what it's about. It is one of the most mysteriously compelling things they'd ever write precisely because no one to this day has ever satisfactorily explained to me what the lyric is about. Then I'd go with Cuyahoga, which we already talked about. It's on Life's Rich Pageant. It's an environmental song, deeply moving, a masterful use of dynamics and structure to build to an emotional catharsis that is incredibly well-deserved. The fourth one I would name is the Untitled 11th Song. It's the last song on Green. It's the one that's not actually listed on the track listing for Green. If you ever go pick up the CD and look on the back of it, believe me, it's there. Believe me, it's wonderful. It's the sort of thing you should get tattooed on your body. Sweetness Follows from Automatic for the People is my fifth song. As I've said already, I, I, I don't understand how this piece was written. I'm in awe of it. And because it's my show and I can do what I want, I'm going to throw a sixth <laughs> song in there. Be Mine from New Adventures in Hi-Fi. That's a fantastic song. Late period R.E.M., magnificent love song and it's a mike mills song in all but name and he deserves some recognition and there you are conclusion of uh, the rem episode of political beats matt welch at matt welch on twitter editor former editor-in-chief current editor at large reason magazine and a massive rem fan matt thank you so much for joining us thank you it was really fun thank you so much jeff look forward to next time yes indeed it should be fun it's always fun 
Remember to subscribe, because it is always fun, to our feed. New episodes Mondays through iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, TuneIn, or nationalreview.com. This has been a presentation of National Review. It is Political Feats.